Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Keeping It Local podcast. I'm your host, Richie Burke, and this show is powered by First Federal Bank. In today's episode, we shift our focus to the ever-changing realm of community banking, exploring the path it is taking in the face of regulatory challenges, rising interest rates, and daunting economic headwinds. We'll explore the future outlook for community banks over the next five years and answer questions like, is a traditional community bank still a viable business model for the long run? Why are these institutions so critical to our local communities and more? Joining us for this conversation are three guests who bring great experience and a unique perspective to the table. We've got Ed Schaefer, our CEO of First Federal Bank, who will provide insights into the current state of community banking and shed light on the challenges as well as opportunities. We also have Kirk Hovde, who drove up from Chicago, managing partner of investment banking at the Hovde Group, who's an expert in the community banking space. And we have John Reichart, a renowned legal expert at Reinhardt with a strong background in financial services and community banking. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So it has been a very wild and volatile last several years. Let's let's start with the current state of community banking in general. From our perspective, we built our bank, our community bank, because it's a viable business going forward. No different than I always make the comparison to the VHS tape didn't wipe out going to the movie theater. People need community banks because of the value that we provide small businesses and individuals. Um, it's, it's a business that is just hitting headwinds, as you said in your introduction, based on you know fast-moving interest rates, 500 percent increase uh, in, in rates um, and scale. Regulatory, you've got to get to scale to be able to support your franchise. It's very expensive uh, to handle all the regulatory requirements of the government. Yeah, I would agree. And on the scale issue, the other thing we're seeing is all the technology requirements and spend, not just the regulatory you need all the defense against fraud and cyber intrusion, and then you need digital delivery. So increasingly, those expenses are pretty fixed, regardless of your size, and the smaller banks are really struggling to keep up. And just when they do, then something else rolls out. So I think, Ed, to your point, in addition to the regulatory, it's all of the technology spend. You need a certain amount of scale to protect the bank and deliver what the, uh, the customers and clients want. And John, to add on that, the technology side, the costs have come down dramatically, but you have to serve the customer the way they want to be served. And that's in what we would call a digital slash virtual environment. And that is a big cost. Thank God it's come down dramatically so we can provide that. But um, it is it is a fixed cost. Yeah, the other thing I'd say there is talent. And Ed, you can comment on the difficulty of attracting good talent and whether that's in the bank space or really other any other industry in the country you know wage inflation is definitely prevalent and for community banks if they are remaining the same size and the talent they're trying to attract is asking for ever increasing salaries and bonuses it's tough to uh, to retain or attract strong new talent and equity Right? Yep. They want equity incentives. They want a piece of the pie if they're going to help grow it. And that's another challenge for community banks is to start thinking outside the box and have something that's creative and competitive. 
And you talk about having to get to scale and you've, we've seen a lot of M&A activity over the last, really over the last few years in the community banking space. Um, how has that shifted just over the last maybe three to three to five years, one before that, maybe you didn't need as much skill and you could still operate efficiently and have a, a good business? Yeah, if you go back to pre-COVID, uh, the industry was averaging around 250 deals a year for eight straight years, so roughly 4% of the industry was consolidating every year. Uh, COVID put a big pause on that just with all the uncertainty out there as to what was going to happen. Uh, you started to see some activity pick back up and then rising interest rates that Ed mentioned going up 500 plus basis points has put a screeching halt to M&A uh, over the last six to eight months. You're starting to see some resurgence of conversations, deal activity, and there's going to be a significant increase in it. But as you've seen over, you know, prior to COVID and then through COVID, that need for scale is becoming ever more important for banks as they think about their future. Because as you are seeing a consolidating industry, you're having fewer and fewer buyers out there. So, you know, you go back to the 1990s, we had 20,000 banks, you know, now we're down to 4,700 banks. And if you fast forward, you know, another 10 years, you're talking about having, you know, sub 750 banks. And, and if you are not keeping up with the organic growth of your bigger brethren, and they likewise are also doing inorganic growth through acquiring other banks, it's just going to make it more and more difficult for community banks to uh, stay relevant. So a couple things. Um, the 750 or sub 750 that'll be an interesting bet and i know a lot of the people in the industry are wondering where will it settle we're not going to be canada we're not going to have five banks you know i think it may be closer to a thousand or fifteen hundred but that's still a lot of consolidation and kirk and his firm have a slide they put out which i love and i use all the time if we're down to four thousand banks about a thousand of those are in minnesota wisconsin illinois and iowa which is just fascinating to me that one in four of the remaining banks are right in our backyard there were Ed's competing, and Wisconsin's down to about 150 banks. And I look at that, and then I look at Michigan, which has maybe 60. And so to me, the, the, it just really illustrates the whole industry you know, and, and where we've been, where we're going. I don't think Wisconsin's going to have 25 or 50 banks, but I also don't know why we need two or three times as many as Michigan. So then when I'm working with clients, the question becomes, how do you become one of those 60, 75, or 100 banks that are surviving, because um, it's inevitable. So I, again, I'm not a defeatist, but I think you have to accept reality and figure out how you're gonna rise to those challenges. There will always be community banks. The question is, what's that look like, and are you gonna be one of them? Yeah, I agree. Um, I was just at a board meeting yesterday, and one of the directors said, hey, I had heard from an industry expert that they thought maybe get down to 300, and John, 100% accurate. Uh, I, you look at you look at the widespread diversity of our country from central central part of the country and the heartland is totally different than the west coast or the east coast or the southeast. And as banks continue to get bigger, you know the big guys out there, the regionals, the Chase, the B of A 
you know, they're not focused on the small communities throughout the Midwest. And that's where I told this banker, I said, I, I just don't see it getting down to 300. We're a totally different economy than some other markets. There will be a point where de novos come back. And we saw one in Minnesota last year. So if Wisconsin, for example, got down to 75 banks, you're going to start to see people forming new banks again. Because yep. they want to form a community bank where you can get to a decision maker. We call that the community bank difference. It's really not rocket science. It's a quick local decision, uh, a great customer experience, and being involved in that community that you serve. And that has disappeared uh, in southeast uh, Wisconsin. We used to have plenty of larger firms that have now become part of mega banks as well as regionals. And that's what is missing. That's what That was the driving force when we decided to take our mutual charter and, and take it public and create that community bank. But what I'm hearing clearly from John and Kirk and the market is it's it, it scale. Because what's really happened in the last 15 years where I came back into the banking industry, there are a lot of branches. There are tons of branches. There are plenty of places for, for people to bank. It's just, can you get that service, that local perspective? Do they know Wisconsin? Do they know South? Do they know Milwaukee? Do they know Madison? And small businesses thrive with that value added with their banker, their accountant, uh, their attorney, their insurance person who adds that value. That's why community banking is never going to disappear. Yeah. I mean, the relationship aspect of community banking is what a lot of your customers look for. And Ed, you can probably talk about when we went through COVID and PPP and even your day-to-day -day lending, you know, you've seen the bigger banks just turn customers away and say, sorry, you know, it's not big enough for us to handle or we've gotten too big that your loan just doesn't move the needle for us. So that's where community banks still fill that void and need for uh, customers around the, the country. And John, you, you say you advise a number of community banks. Ed talked on personal touch, the service, the, the integration into the community. What, what else do you, what do you advise these clients to stay relevant? And if it gets down to a thousand banks, banks in the country, still being one of those thousand banks? So I think there are three or four different things that we see, and I, and I back into it, because when we work with clients, all of them want to remain independent, and I think Kirk can attest to this too. You see pretty quickly the ones that won't, and they have some common denominators. So when we're working with banks, we try to focus on those. Do you have succession planning, both in the executive ranks, in your board? Second, do you have access to capital? Um, what's your current shareholder base look like? Are they eager for liquidity, right? A lot of community banks are aging. Um, Ed doesn't have this problem currently, but a lot of community banks, they have a couple hundred shareholders. The average age is in their 70s or 80s, and the kids or grandkids may not want to own a local bank the way they did generations ago. So figure out your capital. What does it look like? Now, that being said, there are plenty of people in the community that do want to invest in a community bank. So yeah, I, I call it recycling your shareholder base. You know, a lot of these banks have not gone out in years or decades and raised capital. So go to your commercial customers. Go to the local people who are uh, influencers and say, would you like to invest in the community bank? And you'd be surprised how often they say, yeah, never thought of it. Would love to. 
So go out and raise several million dollars, and then you can provide liquidity to the aging shareholders that may want out. So that's a big one. And then the other, the other lane is the one Ed talked about. You need some scale, whatever that looks like, and how are you going to do it? And you need to be really thoughtful. Um, you, banks now, it used to be banks competing with banks. Then it was banks competing with credit unions. Now you're competing with everyone. There have been some slides, and again, I think Kirksfer may have illustrated some of these, where you take all the business lines that you're in and think about all the heavily funded private equity and fintech firms that are attacking every line of a community bank's business. Bill pay, deposits, commercial loans, small loans. And again, that sounds bad, but it's not. Figure it out. We have plenty of clients that are figuring it out. Do you partner with people? Do you partner with other trade groups? Do you form alliances? There's a lot of ways to figure it out. And the banks that want to say, nope, we've always done it this way, nothing's changing, you know, that will always be okay, they're the ones that are going to struggle. So long answer to your question, but when we sit down with clients, if you, if you have access to patient capital that supports you, you have a good management team with some runway, and you're thinking creatively uh, about how to deliver the products that your people want, you're going to be fine. You'll be one of the winners. And th those core businesses that structured around some of these lending areas, like a car loan, you get it at the dealership. There's experts, fintech, large banks that do that. Mortgages, same way. The biggest mortgage lender, what was it, Wells Fargo? They're getting out of the business virtually, and they've really pushed it to fintech um, rocket mortgage. And it's an ancillary service that community banks do now. 10, 15 years ago, it was their core business for many of them. You know, you go back four or five years ago and, and constant conversations at conferences were fintechs are going to make banks extinct. But over the years, everyone slowly realized that becoming a bank, getting a charter, being heavily regulated maybe isn't the right path or might not be possible for some of these institutions. So then it switched from fintechs are going to replace banks to how are they going to work together? to offer these services that are needed. And you see it in every industry continue to evolve from a technological standpoint. So banking's no different. Well, and a good example of this is there are uh, a number of funds that have been created with fintechs that allow banks to invest in them. And I know, Kirk, you're aware of a few, and you are too, Ed. And you can invest. It's a way to tip your toe into the water. And then you get to participate in incubators and different beta testing. And I think they're ingenious, and we're seeing a lot of clients uh, migrate to them because it's a way for a smaller bank to leverage all these resources without jumping in with both feet because that's scary and maybe not entirely prudent. Right. Yeah, we uh, our firm actually launched one of those funds in partnership with a couple banks, the ICBA. And the thesis behind it was you see uh, J.P. Morgan Chase spending you know, $10 billion a year on IT and R&D around fintech. And you say 80% of the banks in the country are only a billion in assets. So how are they supposed to compete when you have the biggest bank in the country spending 10 times what their asset size is on an annual basis? And so we went around and raised a fund with over 100 banks that participated, raised over $100 million to do exactly what John said. Go partner, become a community that you can help vet 
and find different fintech companies in various different platforms that will help make you more efficient, help streamline your business, help you grow. And they're not competitors, they're partners. You know, the banks are investing in them and then also using them as a service. And Richie, the specific and being relevant is continuous improvement. And it's happened in every industry, manufacturing, it's happening in banking. How do you utilize a third party to make you more efficient? We probably have seven or eight relationships with third parties, with the largest one being local here, Fiserv, uh, who handles our core, core system. But a great example of staying relevant is how do people want to open checking accounts today? Oh, everybody thought it was going to be online, online. Very slow uh, process. The pandemic hit. Everybody did everything on Zoom. Now everybody wants to be able to open their checking accounts virtually, and we have to do it in a secure environment. Our bank has put that, made that investment through a third party to be able uh, to do that because the next generation doesn't want to come into the bank. They want to go online, move some money out of another account, set up all their banking with us, have a relationship, but they want a live person. Uh, and they get that virtually um, uh, over the computer. They get a live person on video helping them go through the process because they want help going through it. And there was a statistic not too long ago uh, that I heard and uh, for one of the largest uh, mortgage companies that everybody knows, that only 17% of the people who go online go through the whole process. They have to talk to a person. And in our space, we've got to serve the, that customer or prospect how they want to be served. Do you want virtual? Do you want to talk chat? Do you want uh, to do it online? Or do you want to come into the bank? And more and more of it is moving to chat and virtual well and it's relationship based right i mean exactly. the joke about banks is they're all kind of a commodity they all say they're great at customer service and so on and so forth but i think most of the community banks as we define them are not public companies um, and i know ed you had been uh, but by having local closely held shareholders and not being public you're not driven by quarterly earnings announcements and so on and so forth, so you can focus on the relationship. You still need to be profitable, obviously, but you meet your customers where they are, and you can make decisions based on the relationship instead of transactional. And one of you had mentioned, right, banks are saying, well, if your loan's smaller than X, we don't need you, or if we earned less than Y on you last year, we don't need you. That's transactional as opposed to relationship. It's been a great discussion. Any any closing thoughts before we sign off? Yeah, what I'd say is, as we've talked about in several ways, but community banks just need to stay nimble. There's no right answer to this is how you do it, and this is the only way to do it, to become profitable, to have growth. Again, we have 4,700 banks in the country with completely different profiles from an earnings, from an asset class. So there's no right one way to do it. You just have to constantly be thinking about it. And John had said it before where you see some banks that all 
may kick the can down the road on estate planning, shareholder transition, and by the time they realize it, it's too late, and their only option is to sell and combine with another entity who's got a younger management team and board or the products and services there. So having the conversations amongst the management team and board on a regular basis will just help you stay on top of the changing issues. And you know, Ed, you can talk about it. Uh, you look at the last three years and what banks have had to go through with the pandemic, with interest rates. It's been a wild three years. And I don't think any of you would have looked back and, and envisioned COVID shutting everything down, having to do everything virtually. And then an interest rate environment where you saw a $200 billion bank fail in 48 hours because of a couple tweets that uh, caused runs on banks. It used to be lines out the door. So you know, no one was predicting that. That would have been almost impossible to plan for, but it shows that you need to be thinking about kind of everything out there to stay in front of it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, we've talked about it at length, but I think I'm the message can seem pessimistic depending on your point of view, right? There's going to be all this consolidation. There's a lot of headwinds and challenges, but I'm actually quite optimistic because we have so many clients, people Ed knows, people Kirk works with, who are leaning in, they're embracing the challenge. And, and it's no different than any other small business, frankly. I mean, I'm sure you have it, Richie. All your customers, Ed, they have it. Things are changing, for real and significantly. But it's an opportunity. So the people, who, the community banks that are nimble, one of my favorite words, Kirk, and, and sophisticated and lean in and embrace the challenges, there's a lot of opportunity to be had. Uh, so that's where I see things going. There will be banks, there'll be plenty of them, they'll be local, and there'll be some winners. But it all depends on you know what those management teams and boards do in the next two to three years. Richie, I think I would conclude with we started talking about scale, but at the end of the day, it's passion. And people are passionate about community banks, banking with them, running them. And scale will matter. But as Kirk said, being nimble is very important. Uh, are there $50 million banks left in this country? A lot less. Are there $100 million? A lot, lot less. Uh, so scale does matter in terms of keeping the doors open, uh, handling regulatory costs, but finding your niche, being passionate about that niche and serving the customers, that's never going to go away, and neither are community banks. Very well said. We'll end it there. Uh, Ed, Kirk, and John, thank you guys for coming on today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in to this episode of the Keeping It Local podcast powered by First Federal Bank. If you got value from this episode today, please share it with someone who should also hear this episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. <laughs>